Hello and welcome to episode 18 of UConn 360. It's the only podcast in the known universe that covers every aspect of the University of Connecticut. Uh, today is Wednesday, October 17th, and very exciting. We are coming to you, our inaugural broadcast, or podcast, if you will, mm. from um, the 360 room. We don't really have a name of it, but it's our purpose-built studio. Woo! It's wonderful in Deep here. within stately Lakeside Manor, which is where we work. Lakeside it sounds beautiful already. Is, I hope is, it is sounds the bat cave beautiful. underneath. The bat. I, this could. <laughs> this be, could be the bat cave. We need I to would come up. With that we name. need to come up with a name for our studio. So if you have a name in mind, tweet us. Studio three hundred and sixty on the Sunset Strip. Well, see, that's already a thing. That's Studio sixty though. Oh, Studio three hundred and sixty no, on the Lakeside Strip. Uh, oh boy. Okay. Well, you could probably do better than that. <laughs> I, I, I have we the seventy-seven Sunset Strip theme song at home. Something. See. Um, <laughs> So we're very excited, obviously, about that. <laughs> we're also excited about the show we have for you. We have a lot of great stuff coming up. And uh, why don't we just get right into it? Uh, Do it. Why don't we get some husky headlines? Ken, what's, uh, you have a story that's actually a follow-up on uh, a piece we've already done in the podcast, right? Yes, you'll recall that last spring we did a story about a political science professor, Evan Perkoski, who was studying cybersecurity and terrorism. Uh, we now also have a business professor who has just completed a study on how well-prepared 1,200 companies in Pan-Asia are able to fight cybercrime in places like Malaysia, Hong Kong, and Macau. Shuhi uh, is an assistant professor of operations and information management in the School of Business at UConn, and she was among a group of international researchers looking at the issue of cybercrime against companies. Uh, they found that an increased awareness about certain types of cybersecurity breaches leads companies to make improvements. They evaluated an organization's preparedness against two distinct security issues, spam emissions, I think we're all familiar with that, and phishing website hosting. And they assigned an information security score similar to the idea of Moody's and Standard & Poor's credit ratings. Uh, the score offered an indication of each organization's security vulnerabilities. The study says cyber attacks grow in prominence every day. Last year, 2017, was the worst year to date for data breaches. The support uh, for this grant uh, on the research was from the National Science Foundation and the Public Policy Research Funding Scheme from the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region Government. So that's a lot of heavyweight uh, support for uh, a big problem. I have some news. Uh, you know how much I love capital and real estate news. <laughs> we do. I'm happy to say that uh, we have completed the sale of our former campus in West Hartford, Connecticut, to a global technology and innovation firm called Ideonomics, which paid $5.2 million for the 58 acre parcel. They have big plans to develop something they call FinTech Village. It sounds very exciting. Um, I can't explain it because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but um, so uh, we uh, we sold the campus, obviously, when we moved to downtown Hartford, the beautiful downtown Hartford campus. Um, and in case you're wondering, uh, state law um, is pretty explicit about what we can do with that money. So for example, we cannot um, buy a podcasting limo. Oh, I looked into it. Shucks. Tried. What, uh, about, what about a helicopter? And we can't. No, it has to go to capital projects. Uh, oh, so we could build a podcasting mansion. We could build a podcasting mansion, but instead, what we're going to be doing—at least some of the money—is going to go to remediation of the Stanford Garage property, which, oh, which yes. is now surface parking. They knocked that down. They knocked it down. It was, it was very scary. And now we're going to remediate it. Um, good. We so, need to do that. Yeah. So, congratulations to Ideonomics, and good luck with FinTech Village, Julie. Hey. 
we've got a couple researchers at UConn Health, Christopher Nold, an obstetrician, and Anthony Vella, who's an immunologist, who took a look at premature birth, which is the leading cause of infant death and disability in the U.S. They realized that there's something that prevents women's bodies from rejecting their infant the whole time they're born, and they thought maybe... That breaks down sometimes, and the protection stops, and the body's like, okay, get out. So they found this cytokine, which is a type, I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, it's a type of protein that's released in the body, and it comes out in response to a perceived bacterial infection. And there's actually a drug available that blocks this specific type that comes out in pregnant women right before they give birth. So they're going to look into, it's called GM-CSF, that's short for something very difficult to pronounce, and they're going to look into using that to prevent premature births. So they're trying to patent it. Oh, very cool. All right, let's turn to our stories this week. Uh, Sometimes people ask me, you know, what goes on in Lakeside? What kind of stuff do you do there? Is it just that you're preventing people from getting knowledge, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what they say to you. Reporters say that to me a lot. Kind of a, that is my job. You're kind of a policeman. Uh, no, that's not true. But we have uh, we have a roster of talented uh, people here, talented communicators, including one Elena Hancock. And that's a great segue to Ken's piece. Ken, you talked to Elena about a pressing issue in our world. I did. Just last week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Control uh, put out a report describing the immediate consequences of climate change. Uh, That was a little bit more than we previously thought. Uh, UConn Today has been running a series of these stories called Climate Change in Our Backyard, which looks at some of the rapid transitions in our climate happening right on and off the store's campus as well as around Connecticut. Uh, So I thought it would be timely to talk to uh, our colleague, Elena Hancock, who is writing the series. She has a master's degree in microbiology, so she understands this stuff, and it's from UConn, so that's even better. (laughs) And she spends much of her time writing about research uh, that our our faculty is doing. More than one in five of our faculty here at UConn conduct research related to the environment or sustainability, both globally and locally. So uh, in this very room, uh, last week, we uh, sat down. And Elena and I started talking, and my first question was why she decided to do the series. One of the reasons why I love this job is that I'm always looking for answers about things that are happening around me. And I'm fortunate to be able to work with researchers every day. I can just ask them questions. I began to notice that a lot of the answers to the questions I was asking about stuff happening here was, it's due to climate change. That really surprised me because we always think about climate change as happening in the Arctic or the Antarctic primarily, but the truth is that a lot of these changes you can see just in your own backyard. I was hoping to try to make it more important, more real to readers by pointing out different things that were happening right here in Connecticut. So what are faculty here at UConn working on? Oh, a lot of different things. Um, I I covered a lot of different topics uh, from insects to forests, different animals that are endangered, being affected by climate change. One of the things you talk about is something described as citizen science. Uh, What is citizen science and uh, how does that play out? Citizen science oftentimes involves apps on phones or ways that you can contribute data to uh, scientific research projects. 
examples include iNaturalist, where if you find a plant or an animal, you can take a picture and you can upload it, and scientists can then use that data in their, their research. You did a story about something called camera trapping. Uh, what is that, and why is it important? Camera trapping uses camera footage to track animals remotely. Researchers will put cameras into a forest, for example, and then they can look at that footage to see who's there, how many, when, and it's a great way for them to research remotely in terms of the the costs. It saves a lot on labor. It allows them to gather data they may not otherwise be able to gather. What do we have cameras looking at in Connecticut? They're tracking all sorts of animals, bears, bobcat, deer. They're learning about the densities of deer and tracking how many deer we have in different areas of the state, for example, and the more uh, elusive animals that may be harder to spot, like bobcats. One of the stories you did talked about the Connecticut Bird Atlas. I know we have a very large birding community. We have the Audubon Society. So so what is the Bird uh, Atlas here in Connecticut? Uh, The Connecticut Bird Atlas is an extensive undertaking. It's actually a repeat of a census that was done in the 1980s. This current atlas is focusing on compiling even more data than the the previous atlas. They are collecting data on the birds that are here year-round, what they're doing, where they are, and how those populations may be changing over time, with the ultimate goal of providing the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection with data to help them make conservation decisions. We do have a lot of folks I know studying trees in Connecticut because there is an issue, uh, I guess it's nationwide, about deforestation uh, when from the time the pilgrims came over and they started knocking trees down to build houses, uh, deforestation has been an issue. Uh, where are we with that right now, with particularly respect to New England and Connecticut? We're at an interesting point of time right now. New England has been deforested twice since the arrival of the settlers, uh, and right now we are seeing the effects of climate change in terms of our forests. If you look around, the, the gypsy moths have had a huge impact. We're starting to see new invasive insect species such as the emerald ash borer, which is going to devastate the ash tree population. And a lot of the trees that we have now are nearing the end of their life. So there's a lot of change going to be happening in Connecticut's trees in the coming years. Um, In the years between 1985 and 2010, development was leading to the loss of 13 acres of forest every day. Every day. Every day. That's a lot. That, that is a lot. Uh, you had the opportunity to go out with a, with a class in the field. Tell me what that was about and what happened. Oh, it was so much fun. I went out into uh, the Yukon Forest with a field herpetology class, uh, the study of amphibians, and uh, we were looking. We found some reptiles as well, but uh, we went out at dusk when you really start to hear a lot of the springtime frogs making their calls for mating. And the students and the researchers I went out with, it was just such an amazing experience because at first we're, we're suiting up in waders to go into this, what used to be a field, but now it's flooded because of the resident beaver population. So we're walking around in water, sometimes chest deep, tripping over trees and stumps 
all in the search for frogs <laughs> and snakes. We we saw bats. We saw nighttime birds. We saw frogs, of course, fishing spiders, and just the, the energy and excitement from the students who at first were a little tentative. And then by the time we were done with the night, someone yelled, there's a snake in the water. And instead of running away, everyone ran toward the person so they could spot the snake. It was just really cool. What did you learn about invasive plant studies that are going on here? Well, actually, it was invasive plants that really started to inspire me to write this last spring because you notice when things start greening up in the springtime, it's often the invasive species that are greening up first. And that's one of the ways, ways that the invasive species gain an edge on our native plant species as they start greening up first and they start making their carbohydrates so they can edge out the native plant species. So we've got things like the multifloral rose and the barberry greening up, crowding out our native plant species. And these native plants are important because they support the native food web. Without the native plants, you don't have the native insects. And without the native insects, your native bird species and animals further up the food chain suffer as well. And another thing on top of that is as these invasive species gain a foothold, they crowd out the native plants. There's more pressure for the deer to eat the native plants that do survive. These native plants are just getting pummeled left and right. If you notice, there's not as many insects around. That's one of the reasons. Um, notice a lot of the native birds may not be as prevalent as before. That's one of the reasons. So the food web really starts at the bottom of the chain with these native native plants that are really struggling right now. Learning about the environment is not just something that happens uh, by accident. Uh, there's classes, there's faculty doing research, but now there's uh, a requirement uh, for uh, students in their general education courses to really learn about what's going on. How did that come about? The environmental literacy general ed requirement is something that everyone at UConn should really be proud of. It's, uh, it's unique, and it, is, it, it started as a grassroots effort from students and faculty to ensure that all graduating UConn students had an appreciation for the environment and a basic understanding of what was happening in terms of climate change uh, with the idea of if you appreciate something, you'll fight for it. And that is another reason why um, I enjoyed going out into the field with field herpetology courses. If you if you aren't in nature, you don't appreciate nature, how are you going to protect it? We've all heard of the tale of two cities, but there's uh, another tale of two species that you would like to talk about. Yes. These two species are right here in Connecticut. The story really told the different outcomes that animals can have in terms of how they adapt to climate change or don't adapt. We have on one end of the spectrum, we have the marbled salamander that is actually benefiting from the warmer winters that we're experiencing. And on the other end, we have the salt marsh sparrow, which they're projected to become extinct within a few decades. They're being hit pretty heavily. The, the marbled salamander are the top predators of their ecosystem. They go into a pond and they eat everything else. One of the ways that the researchers are able to tell if the salamanders are there or not is you'll have a green pond because all of the animals that may have eaten the algae have been eaten by the salamander. But I just thought that was interesting. Right here in our state, we can see two vastly different outcomes to climate change.
So th- those recordings at the beginning and the end were from the field trip that she took uh, with with the class. So that was the frogs at the end that, that we heard. Um, we have previously noted, I think Julie mentioned, that we've been recognized as a green campus uh, often. Uh, but the grassroots efforts of our students and faculty who are paying attention to this uh, closely uh, led the University Senate to establish an environmental literacy requirement for general education here at UConn. So now all of our students will leave the campus with a basic understanding and appreciation of the environment from diverse perspectives. And if you want to read Elena's stories, which I hope you will, you can go to the UConn Today website, which is today.uconn.edu. On the left side of the homepage is a tab list. Go to the one marked series, and that will take you to the page where you can find Elena's stories. Elaine is uh, one of my favorite coworkers here at Lakeside. She's a terrific writer and a fun person to be around. And I encourage all of you to follow her on Twitter. She is at Lainey S-H. That's L-A-I-N-E-Y-S-H. I hope I'm among your favorite coworkers, too. Top 30? Oh. <laughs> um, Ouch. I'm going to go put some ice on that. Kidding. About how many people kidding. we have here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, that was a belt-high fastball. I had to swing at it. Uh, yeah, that was. Well, climate change is obviously a very pressing current issue. Also, an interesting current issue, polling. We have midterm elections coming up. Guys, we're going to do a little switcheroo on you right now. Uh, are we going to introduce the story, my story first? That's what I mean. Oh. We're doing a switcheroo, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is kind of a switcheroo because normally Julie does the reported piece, and I just kind of ramble at the end. Um, but this time, <laughs> I did a reported piece. And I'm going to ramble. Hey. I went to the downtown Hartford campus, our beautiful downtown Hartford campus, and I sat down with Jennifer Necci Deneen. She's on the public policy faculty at UConn, and she's a nationally known expert on public opinion research. She also worked with me on the late lamented UConn poll, and I wanted to ask her some general questions about polling and about how to decide if a poll is reliable, and also wanted to talk to her about the midterms and what people should be looking for when they read news reports about opinion polls. I think a lot of people tend to see polls as as purely a predictive tool, but that's not really the purpose of a poll, right? No, yeah, they're not predictive, and um, they have a short shelf life. And so polls are really, they're taking the temperature, or the pulse, we like to say, of what a race might look like at a particular moment in time. That doesn't mean that's what the race is going to look like at the end. Um, And so we're often, pollsters are often held to numbers that they put out maybe in October, especially when we're talking about the midterms. And the dynamics of a race are going to change quite a bit. Midterm elections, voters tend to make their minds up much later than they do in a general election. The campaign season is a bit shorter. It may not feel like that, but it is. And they're getting less information. There's less advertising early on. You know, even though congressional races have gotten expensive, candidates are really consolidating their spending closer to election day. And so voters aren't getting as much information. If you look now at the difference in numbers between, let's say, a sample of all registered voters and a sample of likely voters, those numbers still look very similar right now, which makes me think that over the next two weeks, things are going to move a little bit as as voters firm things up in their minds. And we hear that a lot, likely voters. Um, talk a, a little bit about how pollsters determine who is a likely voter. Sure. It's everybody's secret recipe, or we like to call it the special sauce. Likely voters are determined by asking voters a series of questions about their interest in their race, the knowledge of 
the race, whether or not they favor a candidate or not, so whether or not they've made up their mind and their intent to vote on election day. Some pollsters have a fairly loose likely voter model, so they might ask two or three questions. Some pollsters have a more extensive likely voter model that's like six or seven questions. And one thing, too, I think a lot of people are suspicious or people who don't know much about polling are suspicious. They say, like, well, how can you talk to a limited number of people and make conclusions based on the general population? But polls have a pretty good track record of that, right? Well, if we, right, if we select our people carefully and we select them properly, then we can get a true sample of the population. And it's not going to be exactly the same result that we would get if we talk to everybody. That's what that margin of error is about, that plus or minus number that goes with the results. But, you know, when you make soup, you don't have to drink the whole pot of soup to see how it tastes. You just have to make sure that it's stirred appropriately and that, you know, you haven't just skimmed off the top. Quinnipiac did a poll, uh, Mm -hmm. I think, a few days before the Senate vote on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Before that, there had been a lot of sort of media coverage and media essays and things about kind of like this is going to really inspire women to vote Democratic. This is provoking this anger among women. And the Quinnipiac poll showed that among white women, it was basically evenly divided. I think it was 45-46. What does that tell you when you look at something like that, when, when you look at the demographics of a poll? I mean, is that something that you pay close attention to? It is something that we pay close attention to, but it also, to me, that says more about the narratives that we develop than it does about polling. And I think sometimes when polling doesn't fit our narratives, people assume that it's wrong <laughs> and or that it's biased or some. And I don't, I don't think that's fair. I think, you know, one of the things about what we're seeing with the Kavanaugh, the relationship to Kavanaugh, you know, and the expectation that it would change women. Part of that is just there's not an expectation that it would change men, right? And so gender dynamics work in both direction, but we create this this narrative and the media plays out this narrative. And so I think part of it is that narrative implies a lot of things. It implies that gender is more salient to people than other characteristics or other attachments, including their partisanship and and the political science literature tells us that's not necessarily true. When I was uh, at UConn as an undergrad, one of my professors, Howard Ryder, uh, said, um, it, it, this is a really boring truth, is that Democrats vote for Democrats and Republicans vote for Republicans. Right. It's true. And we are seeing that with the Kavanaugh data. You know, there's there's a narrative that says Kavanaugh motivate Democrats to come out and increase Democratic enthusiasm. And then there's another narrative that says it's going to rally Trump's base and increase Republican enthusiasm. And what we're seeing is it's made the blue voters bluer and the red voters redder. And those people weren't going to change their mind anyway. The narrative that the election will come down to turnout is kind of boring. But, I mean, that's sort of what polls tell us, right? That I mean, The election will come out yeah. down to turnout. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And um, I, you know, appreciate that the media is looking for an inter- interesting narrative. But there really, there's a lot of work in political science that tells us that these game changer events um, or what some scholars have named them, really are not game changers. Um, certainly not in public opinion. They might move the needle a little bit temporarily, but they're not moving. The, they're not making a lasting impact. And what's really interesting, so the New York Times and the Upshot are collaborating, and they're doing a live polling experiment. I'm not sure what I think of the idea of the experiment overall, but their goal is to try to increase the transparency and inspire confidence in the polling process and sort of uncover or 
show to the world all of the different choices that pollsters might make. And when they're doing that, they're showing their results, but they're also showing different their results under different turnout assumptions. And then they're showing their results under different weighting assumptions. Weighting is a statistical adjustment we do to the data to correct for um, non-response when some groups of voters don't respond um, in a significant number. And so on one hand, it's great because you can go on their website and you can look at how your polling estimates or predictions about the election might look different under different scenarios. I think there might be a downside too because it implies a certain level of understanding or knowledge. You know, this can inspire confidence and sort of unwrap the process, but it can also maybe make it look a little bit suspect and like it's malleable. You know, these different voter turnout models are not based on just guesses or what we think might happen. I mean, there's theory that goes behind them. So there's different theoretical models we can use um, to shape, to make decisions about the data. So, you know, everything we've talked about and kind of giving people a primer on what to look for polls, um, how they're not predictive. Um, who's going to win in 2020? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Taylor or Kanye? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, no, I guess there's a last question. Um, what should people be expecting in terms of polling between now and Election Day in the midterms? Is there anything they should look out for? Is there anything they should pay close attention to? It's important to look at the body of work being done. So what I wouldn't do is put too much faith or stock in any one piece of information. I think it's important to, as I said earlier, gauge a poll in the context of the other polling you're seeing in that state. But in lieu of that, also in trends that you're seeing. Um, sometimes polls, outliers can be an indication of movement, but sometimes they're just, you know, it's um, they're just estimates that are not as close to the final outcome as some others. And so I think it's really important to look at the national trends and, and the direction that things seem to be moving in general and not just focus on one poll. All right, so that was interesting. And thanks again to Jen. If you wanna follow her on Twitter, her Twitter handle is at jnechidineen. That's J-N-E-C-C-I-D-I-N-E-E-N. And now, uh, those that we've heard, we've heard your complaints that uh, Tom's History Corner's old hat, it's tiresome. Yeah. You want something new, something fresh? So we're going to get a name with this? We do. Or? We have a much better name than Tom's History Corner. <laughs> ready for it? You ready? It's Julie's, Julie's History, History Corner. Corner. hey Julie, you decided to look into some Yukon history this week. I did. Tell us what you found. Since you did an interview this week, I was like, maybe I'll do that. I just started by looking at a random issue of the Connecticut Daily Campus from when my parents were in school here to see what was going on then. And I found a great story on the first page that I looked at, which was January 26, 1983. So let me ask you a question. When you think of college students, do you think that they're good at like cleaning and cooking for themselves? Depends. Um. Yes, uh, I would say... Uh, generally not. Generally not. Yeah, and when you came to college, did you expect like that someone from the university would be cleaning the building for you? More or less. Yeah. So you must not have lived in what I believe may have been UConn's first learning community, which was a student-run dormitory called the Intentional Democratic Community. So the lead story in that January 26, 83 daily campus announced that operations of the IDC were going to be taken over by the university after nearly 10 years in students' hands. The IDC was in Rogers Hall in Northwest, or the Frats, uh, it was the brainchild of Burns Ballantyne Crookston, which is another excellent name from Yukon history. Yes. He was a professor of 
higher education, and he was a very uh, prolific researcher on um, student affairs, deans of students, their kind of role and what they could do to better students' lives. And he established the idea of a learning community in a very true sense of that phrase, a dormitory where students would learn how to contribute to a community. His proposal pulled in teachings of everyone from John Locke and Thomas Jefferson to Maslow and Chickering to organizational change theory and even Lord of the Flies, which you might think may have been how this all went down. But no, he was using that as a cautionary tale against what happens when you break away from a society. So he wanted these students to be part of a little insular society. Do we, do we, we need to bring Thorson in about Thoreau here? Huh? Maybe. <laughs> the students who lived in IDC were expected to maintain the facility, do some of the cooking, and hold regular meetings to run the community. Each member had to earn two credits of work a week, uh, which a story from 1982 said could be for things like baking bread, which earned two credits, or cleaning two bathrooms for one credit each. I was a little confused Whoa. about why the bread yeah. was worth more than the bathroom cleaning. I don't really understand that. I found a group on Facebook of former IDC members, and it had some really great pictures, which I showed you some of, and a pretty good explanation of how it worked, posted by someone named Regina Mary. She wrote that the IDC was a co-ed student-run dormitory at Rogers A&B from 1974 to 1983, conceived by Professor Burns B. Crookston, who had his roots in the 60s student protest movement and administered by the 120 resident students. The administrative liaison and trusted counselor was Jane Freed, who we'll hear more about in a bit. There were no authority figures other than ourselves. We performed jobs, cleaning, planning meals, washing pots through a labor credit system and spent the money we saved on social and cultural events we democratically considered at community meetings. We thrived for years and learned critical lessons on life and friendship. It was, quote, more than just munchies at 11 p.m. I don't know what that means, but it was the title of a lot of their events and things, reunions. Munchies at 11 p.m. I can give you a pretty good clip. That's a reference to marijuana cigarettes. I understand that. I was trying to be, you know. Jazz cigarettes, we call them. Boy. And it sounds like these people were studying the hippie communes of the 1960s. That's what it seems like. It was a university-sanctioned commune. However, nine years into it, the university administration had its own view and amidst the conservative turn of the Reagan years, nixed IDC in 1983. We weren't perfect. We were figuring out who we were as our most college students, but Crookston was right. IDC absolutely worked because 30 years later, we are still a supportive, caring community. How many student groups can say that? By the time the university was first talking about taking it over in late 1982, the dorm had acquired an image of being a, quote, wild, freaky place. Not at all what Crookston envisioned it to be. And the October 13th, 82 story titled, IDC Told to Shape Up or Break Up, says the residence hall was littered with cats, dogs, and napping students who had previously graduated. Oh, and boy. Were supposed cats to be and dogs gone. living together. I don't understand uh. that. In Northwest, yeah. Apparently, its members had been pretty apathetic about the whole thing for most of its existence. The last six years, according to that story, a maid had to be brought in at least once to clean up their mess. And the IDC was worn by Jane Freed, who you may remember from a few minutes ago, was one of the founders, but was by the time this was being considered to be closed was an assistant director of residential life. So she was warning them to clean up or lose their status. Uh, There was a lot of turmoil involving res life in this era. The impending closing was announced a few years after the infamous end of the world party where students in the old South Campus threw a kegger and caused 15 grand in damage after Mm. they were told their dorms were being converted to co-ed. And the paper right after this IDC threatened to be closed story 
uh, talked about some more plans to turn more dorms to co-ed and students were threatening to cause even more damage. So they hadn't learned their lesson from the end of the world party. Or perhaps they had. So two days after that story about the IDC, the Daily Campus ran two letters to the editor, one against and one saying it was warranted. In IDC closing unjustified, IDC President Robert H. Richter said the Office of Res Life's allegation that the closing was in response to the deterioration of residents' commitment to the maintenance and organization of the student-run dormitory is emphatically and unequivocally not the case. He italicized not the case and ended that with an exclamation point. He said they were more committed than ever and went on to cite Thomas Jefferson's tyranny of the majority fear and explaining the principles and it was very all very highfalutin for, wow. for this commune, glorified commune. He claims that they were given just an hour to clean up after finals and blame the university for not uh, replacing their buffer and holding their unbuffed floors against them and said the IDC had no say in their fate. The university is taking a frightening step towards centralism and uniformity. And below his letter is one from someone named Paul D. Tortland, who I couldn't find who he was then, but I think he was a graduate student here at the time. He's now a doctor. And he argues that they don't appear to be fulfilling their agreed-upon arrangement. And he said, he closes with a nice little zinger, Finally, a claim was made that the IDC runs by natural law. I must point out that a basic tenet of natural law is the concept of entropy, the natural tendency of systems to move towards increasing randomness and disorganization. Zing. I rest my case. Mm. So they had a rally. Res Life didn't back down. Jane Freed was like, guys, you never developed the momentum that you should have. And you're not living up to your goals. USG said the university was violating the Student Bill of Rights by not <laughs> soliciting student opinions in the decision. Free tried to give everyone a little perspective on the matter, saying the right to vote is guaranteed in the Constitution. The right to live in IDC is not. Offering an explanation very similar to I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Carol Wingens, the VP of Student Affairs at the time, said the IDC was created administratively without student input, and so it was closed administratively. If it had been working according to Dr. Crookston's plan, there would have been no reason why we would want to end the IDC. I have a question. Yeah. Um, what happened to Professor Crookston? Where was he in all this? Unfortunately, Professor Crookston died in 1975, and when he died, no one took over as advisor of the IDC. So students became less involved, didn't hold meetings, they didn't clean. And then there's an editorial in the February 1st, 1983 Daily Campus that said the Office of Res Life didn't replace him as the advisor oh. due to lack of funding. And although they tried to save the IDC several times, they lacked the ideological cohesiveness to keep the community going. Mm. And they wrote, the ideology can still flourish even if Rogers A and B still have university-assigned maids and meal plans. The care and community spirit can still thrive even if the dorm has an RA. The democratic spirit and creative expression can remain alive even under the auspices of the Office of Res Life, much like in most dorms. So basically, they were like, suck it up, guys. You can <laughs> deal with this. The IDC closed at the end of that semester. And uh, yeah. That's that's very interesting. It I is. bet I bet they would have thrived if they were all Amish. I feel like they <laughs> Amish people can make that work. I'm not sure about hippies. I you're very offensive toward hippies. <laughs> I don't know. It looks like some of the members are out there and they've had some reunions on campus in recent years. So if they, you're they, if you're listening, IDC hippies. I try be, not to be offended by I, Tom. I believe they contacted us when they were having a reunion at some point when I was doing the magazine. They wanted to... Oh, well, we, we, we hit us up. Yeah, something. it's interesting. I just... I, don't remember when that happened. Tweet us on UConn Podcast. There was, I found online, there was, I think in 2009 they had a reunion, 2012 they had a reunion. I so. think that's when it was, probably. Yeah, they've been they've been kicking around. They've been coming back. So I, we'd love to hear more. If this you... year's the 35th anniversary since the dissolution. It'd be a great year for them to do hey, a reunion. 
hey, come come hang out with us. Tell us your stories about your munchies. All right, that's excellent. Thank you, Julie, for the History Corner this week. <laughs> Sorry that went off the rails. It did not. That's, they all go off the rails. That's the whole point of the History Corner. We're going to wrap up this week, but before we do, I really want to plug Homecoming. Yeah. Because we've got some exciting news about it's not Homecoming. news. We've been talking about No, no, it. but about oh. our guests. Oh, we can, yeah, we can. Ken has arranged that. a special guest, Ken, who, who what, we'll be talking to some people at this, and, and you've, uh, you've arranged for us to talk to one person in particular. Who's that? We'll be talking baseball with... The head coach of the Huskies baseball team, a longtime Husky head coach, Jim Penders, will be joining yes. us. Jim Penders a is a great, great guy. guy. Very excited. And it's a perfect time, too, because uh, the American League Championship Series will be over by October 26th. But both teams in the ALCS have UConn players. Matt Barnes, the reliever for the Sox, or the Sox, as they say. <laughs> yes. And uh, George Springer, last George year's Springer's most valuable awesome. player That's right. in the entire World Series. New Britain boy. Uh, who is on a tear again. He's knocking him out of the park. <laughs> so one of those guys is going to be in a World Series. Yes. Awesome. Very exciting. So we'll have Jim Penders. And Margaret Rubega, who's yes. a very fun professor. She teaches ornithology, which is birds. It is. Study of birds. And she uses Twitter in her class, and she's just a very funny, fun person. So she'll tell some great stories. So October 26th, 3.30 p.m. in the Worth Tower in the Next Gen Forum Room. Um, definitely come out. All are welcome. Well, there'll probably be some other surprises. When I say surprises, we might have like donut holes or something. To... <laughs> but there will be surprises. So definitely come out. Come meet us in person. If you were uh, one of those hippies at the IDC, you can come and yell at me. <laughs> For calling you a hippie. So, yes, homecoming. And s.uconn.edu slash come home to register. Thank you. Uh, also, follow us at UConn Podcast. Um, and uh, you can follow me at TJ Breen on Twitter. Me at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Read UConn today. <laughs> right. Me right there. Darn right. Read UConn today. Thanks, everyone. And uh, um, we don't have an outro. But, uh, just need to say thanks and have a good week. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good week. Bye.